My name is Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church on the first Sunday of spring, maybe. Hope so. Uh, good to see you. It's a gorgeous day. It wasn't yesterday just amazing. I, I don't know if, uh, I guess we've had days up pretty, but not in a long, long time. So it seemed extra nice. Good to see you all. How many of you are here at the 11 o'clock service, but you're actually coming for Sunday school at 10? Yeah. You don't have to tell me the truth, but, but I have a feeling that some of you uh, are here by accident. God bless you. Uh, we're glad you're here just the same. My wife went to Florida without me yesterday. Y'all know how that, y'all know how this, this right to my heart. Yeah, she's gone. Uh, it was my birthday and she left, uh, but she'll be back. But I froze in bed last night. It was so cold. I just, I, I needed a warm body uh, in there. But anyway, she'll be back this week. God bless her. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, in the middle of a sermon series entitled Stories Jesus Told, we're learning lessons from the parables of Jesus. As I said last week, the parables of Jesus operate on many levels, uh, and Jesus managed to accomplish with parables what really can't be accomplished in any other way. Um, But when you look at the parables of Jesus, you really have to pay attention to the context. In, In other words, he doesn't just walk around spitting out stories. He told specific stories to specific audiences, usually in the flow of certain events. And that's why you need to sort of interpret or, or try to figure out what they mean first to the, to the people who would have heard them first, and then we figure out what they mean to us as we encounter them in the Word of God. So the story today is in Matthew chapter 21, but let's look at the context first, and then we'll read the parable together. If you start back at the very beginning of Matthew 21, what's the first thing that happens in Matthew chapter 21? You'll need to look in your Bible for this. The first thing in Matthew 21, what happens? Yeah, Jesus' triumphant entry. It's the very last week of his life, and Jesus makes this amazing entry into the city of Jerusalem riding upon a donkey. He rides upon a donkey. Now, upon entrance into Jerusalem, he goes straight to one place. Where does he go? The, The temple. And there at the temple, he does a rather startling thing. What does he do? Yeah, we call it, he cleared the temple, he cleansed the temple, uh, but, but at, at, at any rate, Jesus walks into that house and acts like it's his, you understand? Which is uh, a startling and, and, and uh, actually it, it enraged the Pharisees and the religious elders. They really couldn't understand where he thought that he had that ability, that right to come into the temple and take over, but that's what he does. After he takes over the temple, it's interesting, some amazing things happen in verse 15. It's 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, he healed them. So there are these miraculous displays of God's power, of Jesus's power after the temple is cleansed. And then it mentions that children begin to praise Jesus in the temple saying, praise God for the son of David. So they're praising him as the Messiah. And the leaders are indignant, it says in verse 15. They asked Jesus to make them stop. Jesus says there's no way to stop them now. Jesus ends up going that night, spending the night in Bethany, coming back the next day. He goes straight back to the temple. He goes straight back to teaching. And at that point, the the Jewish leaders are ready to confront him. Again, they are angry. They're plotting to kill him. And their big question is in verse 23. They say, by what right, by what authority are you doing these things? What gives you the right? In other words, what they're really asking is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? So this is the question that Jesus is answering with this parable. The question that they ask him, who do you think you are? 
Now, that question itself is very, very important. And I want us, before we read the parable, to, to get this basic spiritual principle down. And it's this. To see Jesus for who he really is, you must be willing to see yourself for who you really are. In order to see Jesus for who he really is, you have to be willing to see yourself for who you really are. And let's be honest, none of us wants to do that. Nobody wants to take a good, long, hard look at themselves. We don't like to be judged, and we certainly don't like to judge ourselves. But this is what needs to happen before we can know who Jesus is. So if their question is, who do you think you are? The question they have to ask at the very same time is, who who am I? And the Pharisees aren't going to do that. They don't want to judge themselves. They don't want to look at themselves. So how do you get somebody who doesn't want to look at themselves, how do you get those people to finally, once and for all, take a long look at themselves and judge themselves? How do you do that? Well, turns out that's what parables are for. This is what parables do, and this is what happens. Jesus will tell the parable. You watch it happen as very, very slowly but surely they step into the story and the truth falls on them in Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to start reading with the parable in verse 28. They've said, who do you think you are? By what authority? And Jesus says this. What do you think? A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind. The word there is repented. Later he repented and went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir. The word there is Lord. The Greek word is Lord. He says, yes, Lord, I will. But he didn't go. So the question, which of the two obeyed his father? They replied, the first. Then Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. For John the baptizer came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him while tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and, say the word, repent. You refused to believe him and repent of your sins. Very, very quickly, the story about two sons becomes a story about them. Let's break it down. Take a look at the story with me. Jesus starts off in verse 28 with words, what do you think? What do you think about this? Well, what do you think? Why would Jesus start the parable with a question? That question in itself affects the way they're going to listen. It makes them understand that, that, that they're going to be asked to make a decision or to pass some sort of judgment. So there's going to be something that they must decide in the course of the story. So Jesus says, what do you think? And then he begins telling this story. Now the story turns upon that question, that question that they're being asked to think about, the decision that they're going to make. And what is the question around which this parable turns? What's the big question? It comes in verse 31. What's the question? Which one obeyed? Which of the two sons, and and Matthew's words are important. In in verse 1, what he says is, which of the two sons did the will of the father? Which of the two sons did the will of the father? So understand, that's the question. Which of these two sons is going to do the will of the father? So what is the will of the father? What is it that the father in the story asked the sons to do? Same thing in both cases. He goes to the son and says, 
Go out into my vineyard and work. Go out and work. Now, the first son does what? What's his first response? He says, no. Now, honestly, in the ancient world and in most of the world that we live in, you don't tell your father no. Understand? But he does. He says, no, I'm not going. But what happens? Yeah, he, he, he repents. The scripture says he changes his mind. The word repent means to change your mind. It's a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. So he repents. He changes his mind and he goes. So even though he first said no, he lead, later ends up going. All right? So then there's the second son. The father goes to the second son and says, son, I want you to go work in my vineyard. And what does this boy say? He says, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, which would have been an appropriate way to address your father in those days. He says, yes, Lord, I will go, but what? He never puts down the Game Boy. Understand? He never, ever turns off the television. He never goes. He said he would. He sounded like he was going to go, but he never goes. He says, yes, Lord, I will go, but he never goes. Jesus says, which of the two did the will of the Father? And that's interesting. That, that last son says, yes, Lord, I will go, but he never goes. Back in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, this, the passage in Matthew chapter 7 is very close to the parable here. I think that Jesus intends the connections to be made. Look at this. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom, but only the one, say it, who do the will of my Father. Only the ones who do the will of the Father. This phrase is all through the Gospel of Matthew, you must do the will of the Father. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom, but only the ones who do the will of the Father. So this second son says, yes, Lord. He calls him Lord. Lord, I will go. But he doesn't go. Who actually does the will of the Father? Well, the Pharisees say, the, the first. It's the first. It's the one who actually goes. He said he wouldn't, but he did. So it's actually the one who does the will of the Father. So Jesus asks, and they answer, and then Jesus starts to explain. Jesus starts preaching the sermon. And listen to what he says. I tell you the truth. Corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. For John the baptizer came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him while tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent. Repent. So what's the difference between the two sons? What's the point that Jesus wants to make with these men, with these leaders? The difference between the two sons, you would say, well, one of them goes to work and one doesn't. But that's true. But there's something that happens first, and it's the most important part. The son who ends up going to the vineyard and worked, he is the son who repented. So it's a parable about repentance. Who repents? Who does not repent? Neither son is a good example. Understand that. But the one who repents is the one whose change of mind leads to a change of behavior. And he ends up going into the vineyard and working. So it's a parable about repentance. It's repentance that Jesus is talking about. And it is repentance that these religious leaders simply will not do. They will not repent. And that's the point, you understand? Actually, when you look at the parable, I think there's several lessons that we can learn. And this gets pretty complicated. And I want you to understand, it's a parable about two sons. It's a 
story that affects the religious leaders, but it's also a story about us. Parables always turn out to be a story about you, and so there are lessons that you need to think through. And the first of these is this one, and this is going to be hard for some of you to think about, but bottom line, your first response is not your final response. The parable teaches this. Your first response is not your final response. Now, everyone who comes to Christ, everyone who becomes a Christian, you're responding to the Lord's call, responding to the Holy Spirit's call. And he will call you perhaps multiple times through your life, but understand your first response is not necessarily your final response. Now, pay attention. In the story, the first response of the first son is no, but eventually he repents. So the fact that he said no in the beginning doesn't necessarily mean that he finally doesn't repent. He does. Meanwhile, the second son says yes. He actually seems to respond to the father But he's not actually responding at all because he doesn't respond with his actions. It doesn't affect his behavior. You understand? There is no repentance there. So even though he first said yes, ultimately he doesn't respond at all. So you can't necessarily know what the final response is going to be by paying attention to the first response. It gets complicated, I know. Back in, I think it was 1998, there was a big football game between the Lions and the Steelers on Thanksgiving Day. It ended up in a tie in regulation, so they ended up going into overtime. They were doing a coin toss to determine possession into overtime, and a man named uh, uh, Jerome Bettis was the captain for the Steelers. And this turned out to be a major controversy still talked about to this day, because when the coin went into the air, the referee said, call it, and Bettis said, heads, tails. You get that? He said, heads, tails. Uh, Okay, I I think he meant to change his mind. I don't really know what he meant, but he said heads, tails. Now, the rule that the referee had to follow is the very first word out of your mouth is is the call. So the fact that the first word out of his mouth was, it was kind of, hey, Head, but, but, but that's what the referee took. He said, hey, so he called heads. So the referee said, heads it is. But when the coin landed, it landed on tails. So what do you think Bettis said? I said tails. I said tails. Actually, what you said was heads, tails, which isn't really a call at, at all. It's kind of trying to have both. Heads, tails. But as it turned out, it landed on tails and, and he lost the call. It's a huge controversy that continues even to this day. What did he say? What did he mean? He even actually says, I said heads, but, but only before I said tails. You, you understand? He, he kind of said both. This is exactly why. Remember the old game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Remember what Regis would say before he would finally you know, take your answer? What would he say is... Is that your final answer? Yeah. Why did he say that every time? Didn't that get old? Why do you think he said every single time, is that your final answer? Because a million dollars is at stake. And with a million dollars at stake, if if you get the wrong answer, what might you say? Well, but yeah, I was still going to phone a friend. Yeah. I wasn't finished. I I was probably going to pull the audience. No, no, no. You gave your answer. The lawyers for who wants to be a millionaire insisted that every single time he say, is that your final answer? Bottom line, it is hard to pin one of us down to a final answer. We like to leave our options open. 
We like to think that, yeah, I'll say that now, but if the situation changes, I would like the freedom to change my answer once more. And a lot of us live our whole lives this way. We don't give final answers. We always leave our options open. We always leave the back door open so that we can change our minds later. But I'm telling you, when it comes to salvation, you have to make a final answer. And some of you have yet to make a final answer, and this is the point you have to recognize, that there's no such thing as a halfway Christian or an almost Christian, that there's no such thing as somebody who, you know, yes and no, there is no yes and no, there is no heads and tails. Either you are or either you are not a believer, a Christian, and your first response is not necessarily your final response. The simple thing that you must recognize is salvation is a lifetime commitment, and a lifetime commitment takes a lifetime. As as pastor, I work with a lot of families and a lot of children as they come to Christ, and it's one of my favorite things to do. But I will tell you, sometimes parents get really frustrated with me because I I tend to be very patient in this process, especially with very, very small children, because we're talking about a lifetime commitment, and not every child is prepared or ready to make a lifetime commitment. Now, I know that most any child can repeat a prayer after me, but repeating a prayer after me is not the same thing as surrendering a life to Christ. I can get any kid in this church to say a prayer after me, understand? I I think that when a child or when anybody is coming to Christ, that's a very holy moment, and we have to really understand all that is at stake. Now, sometimes kids will do what I I call a dry run. In other words, they'll, they'll go through all of the motions of having become a Christian, but it's not the same thing as really having made a mature lifetime commitment. Once we were coming back from uh, the aquarium in Chattanooga, and my son was sitting in a car seat. He was four years old. He was sitting in a car seat with a pacifier in his mouth, all right? You understand? You get this picture? He was a, a little one. Car seat, pacifier in his mouth. As we were driving, he popped the pacifier out of his mouth, and he said, I just prayed and asked Jesus to come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. I looked at him, I looked at my wife, I'm a pastor, I'm thinking, what in the world do I do with that? (laughs) He's four, he was four. I did not bring him right to church and pitch him in that tub, I I, I can tell you that. I, I needed to see, I needed to know if that was genuine. As it turns out, it just wasn't. I'd say, Wade, what do you think it means to ask Jesus into your heart? Well, you become a Christian. I mean, he was a, he's a preacher's kid. He knew all the answers. I'd say, Wade, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Who's Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God who died for me. He died for us? Really? Why did he die? He died to forgive us of our sins. I'd say, well, Wade, do you sin? He'd go, no. You know? <laughs> no. That's not a joke. Honestly, that awareness of sin is sort of the last thing that pops into place. It's sort of the sign to me as as a pastor, as someone who counsels children, that's sort of the sign that a kid is ready to sort of make that decision. They, They become aware, personally aware of sin, 
And it's really one of the last things that snaps into place as a young mind develops that capacity to respond to God. If you can't recognize your sin, then you can't understand what the problem is. And if you don't know the problem, then you can't possibly understand the solution. If if you don't know what's wrong with you, then you don't know what Jesus is going to do to save you. Do you understand? You've got to be able to put some of these things together, but, but not every person does. What I'm basically saying to some of you is the fact that you prayed a prayer at some point way back in your life, that doesn't necessarily mean that you made a lifetime commitment that you're still living out in your life. Because the fact is, many people aren't still living any sort of commitment to Christ. It's not what happened to you. I mean, let's be honest, that didn't happen to you. You prayed a prayer. You said words, and maybe you thought they were the right words, and maybe it felt like magic words, but I'm telling you, becoming a Christian is a whole lot more than just mouthing words to a prayer. But yet some people that continue to go back and and act as if that somehow makes a difference in their life. The point is it hasn't made a difference in your life. This is what I'm saying. That initial response, that first response was obviously not your final answer, not your final response, because you're not living for Christ. Now, I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that a person who's genuinely saved ever loses salvation. If we could lose our salvation, we would. All of us would. If it were up to me to somehow keep myself saved, I can't do that. I'm not talking about somehow earning salvation by works. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm just talking about what it means genuinely and honestly to surrender your life to Christ. And it is a total surrender. It's, it's an absolute, total surrender. I don't necessarily understand where we got the idea that, that living for Christ would be optional. You understand what I'm saying? So many people who call themselves Christians, they... They don't seem to follow Christ. They don't think like Christ. They don't live like Christ. I I think the really important thing for you to consider is that you are honestly not necessarily what you call yourself, but you are what you prove yourself to be by your actions. I'm not saying you earn your salvation by your actions. I'm just saying if you are, it'll, it'll be pretty obvious by the way you live your life. I mean, what does it even mean that we live in a country where 87% of the people say that they're Christians? 87% of, of all the American population. I, I can't accept that, and, and I'm not the judge. It's just I live in the world. I know that 87% of my neighbors are not Christians because I know my neighbors. I know that 87% of this country can't be Christian because online pornography is one of the biggest industries in our country. I know that every single minute of every single day, there are thousands of online searches for child pornography. There's something profoundly lost and broken about this nation. It cannot be that 87% of us are Christians. It just can't be. But because we prove by our actions that we don't know Christ— We prove that by our actions, and you're proving it by your actions. It's not what you call yourself, but what you prove yourself to be by the way you live your life. I don't know if it's about coming to church. I don't know if simply being religious people sort of confuses us. 
because it's not about religion and it's not even about coming to church. But some of us, I think we come to church and therefore it gives us this illusion of, of participation or this illusion of, of somehow really, really belonging to Christ. When, when, when you don't belong to Christ, you just belong to a church. And while church is important, it's not the same thing. Being in church, which you are, is not the same thing as being in Christ, which you may not be. It, it comes down to this incredible lifetime commitment, which some of us have just simply never made. Maybe once you said you would, maybe you mouthed the words, maybe you're like the son who said, yes, Lord, I'll go, but you never went. Yes, Lord, I'll surrender, but you never surrendered. Now, I'm not saying that salvation is, is in any way just for people who can live a certain kind of life. That's not the point. And that's not the point of Jesus' story either. That's not what Jesus is saying. As I said, neither one of these sons is a good example. They're both bad examples. So salvation is not about somehow being perfect or being a better person than anybody else. None of us is. I'm not. Salvation is not for the perfect but it's for the ones who are truly repentant. It's about repentance. Repentance is this incredible deep change of mind, a change of heart that is always revealed, always exemplified, always displayed in a change of actions. You see, the thing is, some of you say that Jesus has made a difference in your life, but, but those of us who watch your life, we don't see a difference. You say with your mouth that you expect to go to heaven when you die, but you live like hell. And those things don't go together. Do, do, do you understand? So salvation is not about being perfect. It's, it, it's not about that, but it is about being repentant. And this is the one thing that the Pharisees would simply never be repentant. That's why Jesus says to them one day, he says, you know, John the baptizer, he preached to you. He, he, he told you about the way to live, but you didn't believe him. And you wouldn't repent. Tax collectors believed and they repented. And prostitutes believed and they repented. But, but you've never repented. You understand it's repentance that makes the difference. Philip Yancey, famous preacher, famous author, had an opportunity once to preach in Eastern Europe to a gathering of women who had been brought out of a life of prostitution. They were all either former prostitutes or women in the process of coming to Christ and coming out of prostitution. But bottom line, this is a congregation, a conference full of nothing but women who knew prostitution. Philip Yancey, at the end of his speaking time, he asked for an opportunity to talk to the women, and that's what he was doing when he asked them this question. And I find it shocking that he would ask them, but... He asked him, he said, do you all know what Jesus thought of women in your profession? Do you know what Jesus said about women like you? And, and then Jesus read this passage, the one we just read. Jesus said, John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe while tax collectors and prostitutes did. Corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes were getting to the kingdom of God before you. Do you know what Jesus thought of you? One woman, Eastern European prostitute, took the microphone and, 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 and talked to Philip Yancey. And she said, all of us know what Jesus thought of us. All of us know what everybody thinks of us. 
When we were growing up, none of us had a mother who said, little girl, when you grow up, I hope you become a really good prostitute. None of our mothers said that. Our families have shamed us. The world shames us. We know what everybody thinks of us. Everybody else in the world has somebody they can look down on, but we have nobody to look down on because we are the lowest of the low. That's why she said, when we hear of Jesus and we understand that he's calling us, we run to him. We are not ever in the danger of loving our lives so much that we won't leave our life to follow Jesus. Do you know why prostitutes and tax collectors and thugs and all those types will will make it to heaven ahead of you? Because they're not so satisfied with their life that they won't leave it to follow Jesus. It's called repentance. You see, some of us, we just love our lives so much. We, we love ourselves a lot. And, and, and the religion that we have does what we want it to do, and that is it just makes us feel better about ourselves. But that's not the gospel about feeling better about yourself. When, when you once and finally hear the word of Jesus, it doesn't call you to feel better about yourself. It calls you to leave the life that you've been living, leave it all, and follow Jesus. If you won't do that, you can't be a Christian. Who do you think you are, the Pharisee said. By what right, by whose authority, what makes you think? Jesus said, well, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, go out and work in my vineyard. The boy said, no, no, I'll never go, I won't go. But, you know, the father moved on, and the, the boy changed his mind. He changed his heart and repented, and he ended up going out into the vineyard and worked. Father went to the other son and said, I want you to go out in my vineyard and work. And the boy said, yes, sir, yes, Lord, I will go. But you know what? He never went. He never did anything. He said yes, but he never moved. Which of those two uh, did the will of the Father? What do you think? What, what do you think? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, while it is my voice that is speaking, I pray that it will be your voice that is heard. Oh God, there are many, many people in this world who call out, Lord, Lord, but will never see inside the gates of your kingdom, Lord, because they have refused to do the will of the Father. 
Lord, we just often refuse to admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and therefore we cannot know the Savior. We never come to the Savior. We won't repent. Lord, some of us don't ever look at ourselves long enough or hard enough or honestly enough to find anything worth repenting over, Lord. We have an amazing way to excuse everything we do. We have an amazing ability to make ourselves just continue to feel good. Never truly seeing that we are rebellious sons and daughters far away from the Father. Lord Jesus, help us to see ourselves for who we really are as sinners, desperate sinners. With no one lower to look down upon, Lord, we are the lowest of the low. We are sinners in desperate need of salvation, sinners in need of a Savior. Lord, until we are willing to see ourselves as sinners, we will never, ever turn to the Savior, Lord. Help us. Some of us in this house, Lord, we call ourselves Christians. But, Lord, we have never, ever reached that moment in our life where we made that final and total surrender to you. Lord, we call you Lord, but we have never given you the place of honor, Lord, the royal seat. We've never given you the throne of our hearts. We call you, Lord, but we do not do what you want us to do. No matter what we say, Lord, our lives reveal what we truly believe. And, Lord, what we truly believe is obviously not the gospel. So, Lord Jesus, will you help us? Lord Jesus, will you speak to us? Lord Jesus, will you let the truth fall on our heads so that we once and for all and finally make a total commitment of our lives to you? Lord, help us not to believe our own hypocrisy, our own delusions of righteousness, Lord Jesus. Help us to turn to you once and for all and follow you with our lives, believe with our lives. Lord, there are men, women, boys, and girls in this house and eternity in the balance. I pray, Lord Jesus, that all those who are far away from you today will come home. I pray, Lord, that every sinner in need of grace and salvation will turn to the Savior and find peace today. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.